is Shaping the Future by Regent Street, brought to you directly from the iconic London Street itself and launched to celebrate its 200th anniversary year. Our modern world and everyday experiences are constantly being formed and informed by cultural influences around us. From traditions of old to the incoming tides of technology and emerging trends in fashion, art, food and well-being, this podcast celebrates how Regent Street is leading the way with these cultural forces and their impact on places now and in the future. I'm Elizabeth Day, journalist, podcaster and cultural magpie, and I'll be interviewing industry leaders making pioneering contributions to the world around us. And on today's episode, we're talking about the very important issue of food waste and sustainability with three fantastic people who all work in various respects in food. It is such a pleasure to welcome Emmy Van Bake, who is Head of Sustainability for Hawksmoor, uh, which for many of us is London's favourite steak restaurant. Uh, We also have the fabulous Melissa Hemsley, who is soon to be a four-time author. Her book's coming out in January and a sustainability columnist for British Vogue. And finally, we've got Henry Dimbleby, who is known to so many of us as the co-founder of Leon, that fantastic restaurant chain. But more importantly, for our purposes, also the co-founder of the Sustainable Restaurant Association. Thank you all so much for coming and welcome. Melissa, you've been championing sustainability for a while now, and it feels like you are that trusted friend for people who are reading British Vogue because you make it very accessible. And I just wanted to ask you specifically about the Regent Street and St James's Food Waste Pledge. And I know that you've been a big backer of that and what it was that drew you to be involved with that. Mm. Food waste as, as a sort of term, it doesn't sound very sexy. And a lot of the chefs I meet are people that are already thinking about these things. They're just not naming it food waste. It's just something that they do anyway. And I think chefs and restaurants have such a power to show off and showcase and teach us more, those of us that cook at home, about how to be and how to really get the most and use the full glory of vegetables and meat and, and everything in between. So... Anyone that's standing up and going, do you know what? We're committing to this. We're not perfect. We're looking to learn. We're looking to show and showcase skills. I think it makes the menu more exciting. I I love knowing. And I remember growing up, you know, when I probably went to my first restaurant, my mum's Catholic, Filipino, my dad's in the army. We never ate out ever. So when I finally started to have a, when I started working at 18, had a little bit of money to eat out, I would, I would really stress and agonise over where to eat. And I remember reading somewhere that, you know, you shouldn't eat the the specials because it would would be the food that was left over. But my mum always taught me that the food that was left over was probably even more delicious, that it didn't mean anything was wrong with it. And it was actually probably there was some creativity, extra creativity went into it. So yeah, I'm just a, a big fan of anybody that's willing to go that extra mile because it is very, very tough to, to run a restaurant. And Melissa, for home cooks as well, your tips are very practical and easy to assimilate. So one of your tips is just like use the parmesan rind, which is actually the most flavourful bit, isn't it? Oh, it's delicious. It's absolutely delicious. Well, actually, for my Vogue column, the two biggest hits that I've had have been part one, London's top 10 sustainable restaurants has been had lots of clicks. And the second one has been, it's just come out, it's tips for clearing your fridge before you go on a trip. So holidays or thinking ahead to Christmas, you know, that feeling where you're packing up your entire life and you're going away. And the last thing is, you know, people don't like to feel guilt at all. 
I get that. Especially food guilt. So turn it on its head and just go, right, what can I cook that will give me a really nice dinner before a trip away? Because you know that airport food, and unless you go to a fantastic place like Leon in an airport, <laughs> you know, you're not going to have the best meal. And who wants to be constipated and feeling rough on a plane? I don't. So cook something delicious the night before. Make double. Just use up what you've got. Put the rest in the freezer. And that feeling when you get in and you dump your bags and all you want to do is a cup of tea, put the TV on. Maybe if you've got the energy, put a wash on. You pull out what you've made. It's like an investment to your to your future self from the freezer. No waste, no guilt. You could have a pizza when you get back, but you know you might land at eleven o'clock. A lovely chicken and chickpea tagine from the freezer would, I think, stop those post-holiday blues and gear you up for Monday morning. It just makes sense on so many levels. The planet, your your wallet, it, you save money. I hate taking the bins out. Why would you take the bins out any more than you need to? And actually, leftovers, yeah, they are. We all know curries. A cur- if you think about a curry, best, you know, several days later, four days later, and I just apply the same rule to everything. Yeah, because they've had a chance to stew and marinate in their spices. Delicious. Anyway, Emmy, before I get too distracted down that avenue of, of curries, I know that Hawksmoor signed up to the Food Waste Pledge. And I wonder, what have you implemented since signing up to it? Because I know that there are dishes on the menu that make use of what we were talking and describing there as leftovers. Yeah, so we've had quite a few dishes on for years now that are aiming to utilise edible uh, trimming, basically, and anything left over. And for a few, so we've got a, a dish on potted beef that is using the trimmings from our belly ribs and uh, different uh, cuts of steak. It started off as a star food dish and it was so delicious that it's now on the menu and it's been on the menu since 2011, I think. And... A lot, especially with our vegetarian dishes, we try to utilise everything. We've been doing that for quite a few years because it makes sense. It makes financial sense. It makes uh, environmental sense to utilise the whole of the cauliflower, not just the florets. But since we've uh, taken part in the pledge, it's been great because we've really looked at where the waste is coming from and what can we actually do and how can we actually make a meaningful difference within our restaurants and a lot of that is within prep and just kind of a little bit more training in the kitchens enabling the chefs to be able to prepare the food in the best possible way and that was really valuable for us to to really see it on paper where the issues might lie and try to fix it. And it's good for the bottom line I'm guessing as well. Oh absolutely yeah I think that I've always talked about food waste or and any kind of sustainable issue really from an environmental and a, and a financial perspective because you can't make everyone care and at the end of the day we are a business and we need to run a business and if you can find a way to help your bottom line uh, make sure that at the end of the month everything's looking a lot better than it was the previous month and you're managing to put less food in the bin uh, purchasing less foods therefore the demand on the farmers is less then you're in a win-win situation. And Henry, following on from that, I think we're all aware that individuals need to make a change, but also that it's a national issue and it's a sort of systemic issue. So how do you go about, because I know you've been really involved in government initiatives to make school dinners healthier and so on and so forth, but how do you go about tackling that, like the national issue? So I think it's there's a really interesting question of economics. I've actually just been commissioned to lead a, a national food strategy across government for, the, for, for England, linking up the work on the obesity strategy and the work going on in DEFRA. And the urgency and the need is clearly there. Agriculture produces 30% of our greenhouse gases and we're estimated to waste 
30% of our food. So, you know, do the math. That's 10% reduction in greenhouse gas you could have overnight. So why is it so hard? The reason it's so hard is that although this isn't true for the for the least affluent in society, for most of us, food is much cheaper than it used to be. It's gone from being about 30% of our household spent to about 11% over the last 50 years. And what happens when things are cheap? You don't worry about throwing them away. So you have a system both in businesses where... Um, you know, if you're in a high-end steak restaurant, wasting a carrot is not going to hurt your bottom line that much. Uh, and at home, my guess is, and we're, we're trying to look at this for the National Food Strategy, my guess is that food waste is very much skewed towards the more affluent in society because why not fill your fridge? You'll never go hungry. And my hope is that that's very hard. When the economics like that, it's really hard to change fundamental economics like that you'll feel a little bit bad throwing your food out but in the end it's not going to hurt your your bottom line so how do you do that and my hope is that this this recognition about the greenhouse gas impact is going to be the thing that actually makes people take it seriously you know we have gone from a situation where 15 years ago uh you know worrying about the, the environment was uh, a niche concern and now it is even in you know, most of the libertarian, economically liberal people think climate change is a massive issue. That is my one hope. But I think it's really tricky. I think actually, everyone looks at the food waste and says, it's just so simple, you stop throwing it away. But the fact that it's still happening when economically, you know, people don't want to throw away money makes me think it's actually one of the harder things to tackle in the system. How important is food waste recycling? So, if you're not going to eat the food in the fridge or it's gone off or something and then you put it in your food waste, your individual food waste recycling container, mm-hmm. do you think that that makes people feel more willing and able to throw stuff away rather than cook with it? I mean, let's be clear. It is a really bad use of energy to uh, plant a seed in the soil over several months, let the sun soak up the energy into that seed to grow a plant, harvest that plant, package it, drive it to a supermarket, bring it to your house, put it in the fridge, throw it in your bin, getting picked up by waste men, turn it into compost, and then put it back on the field. That is not... Uh, it is much, much better not to waste that food. So I think you're right. You know, it is... If you are an individual thinking it's okay, I'm recycling it, you're probably, uh, you know, dealing with... Five percent of the uh, of the carbon that that food has done, so that shouldn't. If you don't know where to start and you're not aware of of your own individual impact, have a little look in your food waste bin before you you know take it out, and it's a really good opportunity to see what's in there. So it might be you know the the butt of a fennel or those lovely celery leaves, and I think a lot of the time people don't we don't know what we're. What we can, we can eat. So I, 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 for the research for my book, I said to everybody, can you go and look in your bins or tell me what's rotting in the back of your fridge? Rocket always comes up. So then I was like, great, I'll do a million recipes on rocket. Cauliflower leaves were coming up, carrot top. So, you know, carrot top pestos. But weirdly, I don't know, Henry, maybe you know, but loads of people said to me, mushroom stems. People had this idea that they learned from their parents cooking that you can't eat the mushroom stem. And I was like, I've never heard that. Where are you getting that from? But it's somehow soaked into people, a bit like reheating rice. I was like, you can't reheat rice. We all know how good egg fried rice is. But a lot of the times something's stuck into your head that you can't do with food. So it's just about re-looking at that. So it could be a good exercise. Go and have a little look in your bin, back of your fridge and see what you're throwing away. And two for one deals or all those buy two packs and so on. I always think to myself, I'm a sucker for a deal but if I know I can't eat it 
you know, within a couple of days, it goes into my freezer or, or I challenge myself to, what's your plan with this? What's your plan with this tomato, Melissa, before I do it? <laughs> I can't think of anything worse than throwing it away. And also Britain has such a high reliance on ready meals and takeaways. I think the highest in Europe. Why do you think that is? Germany has the second highest. Germany, and, really? Yeah, and the least cooking from scratch. And, you know, people... Uh, put different reasons on it. The One of the more convincing ones that I have heard stems back to the 18th century and then through the 70s. So uh, in the Industrial Revolution, we were obviously the first industrialised city, mass migration into cities, separation from the countryside, much bigger separation of population from the countryside and therefore from the food system. So we made that separation way before anyone else. Before the war, we only grew 20% of our food. You know, we got our food from the empire. And then on top of that, which hadn't happened in other European cities, everyone able to go to work, women no longer at home cooking the food. Then you had a need for ready meals in a society or, or, you know, quick convenience meals in a society where the connection with the land had already been disconnected. So there's no, you can't prove that, but that is of all the stories that people tell, to explain why our food culture went in a very different way from from other places in Europe. That is the most convincing one. A disconnect from the land. Interesting. And, you know, in France as well, they have such a cultural appreciation for their farmers. Like They revere their farmers and their artisans. And the more, actually, you know, the more I am thinking about the trips I'm taking in the next few weeks, going to Cornwall, going to the Silly Isles for their Slow Food Festival, the more I spend time in the UK, the more I I realise how how amazing our produce is here. And there's so many Sustainable Restaurant Association, the Great Taste Awards, all of these fantastic ways to get in touch more with your local producers. And of course, farmers markets, but people roll their eyes and say, who's got time to go to farmers markets? But farmers market doesn't mean it's, you know, five pound coffees and really expensive things. It, it is a great way to connect with with farmers and growing your own. I mean, I've just started growing. I'm crap. But I won't throw away, even if I wanted to, I won't do it because I know how much effort I put into growing that, that, that sage bush. We've been talking a lot about lovely vegetables and Melissa, I know that your new book, Eat Green, which is out in January, is all about flexitarianism and being able to eat what you choose in the best way. But Hawksmoor is very famous for its steak. And given that we're talking about sustainability, Emmy, I would love you to talk us through, because there is this idea at the moment that veganism is good for the planet and that meat isn't that sustainable. But what's your take on that? It's a really interesting subject and I think we're in a really interesting place right now and I think Henry obviously is is going to be working on this as a, as a much larger scale I think for us for Hawksmoor especially we know that the the world isn't going to go vegetarian overnight people will still eat meat and that's a fact I think any meat and fish that we put on the menu we source it in the most uh, sensitive and uh, ethical way we possibly can and providing that to customers so there is an access point for them I think it's really important. I think we look at every dish that goes on the menu, we look at from a sustainability point of view. We we have a, a long list of questions we ask ourselves whenever we're creating a, a dish. And and we the relationship we have with our producers, our suppliers, the farmers is so integral to making sure that that ingredient is the best we can possibly have. And I think it's having that idea that meat is a treat and we do talk about that quite a lot in our last cookbook there was loads and loads of vegetarian dishes in there for a steak restaurant obviously it's not a uh, a fully vegetarian cookbook at all but I think talking about that idea that meat is a treat when you do eat meat eat uh, a smaller amount or eat the best you possibly can afford 
and try to eat a more of a plant-based diet the rest of the time. But I think for, yeah, for us, just making sure that we are true to the fact that we are providing the best we can possibly provide for our customers. And do you find that your customers are asking more about sustainability on a day-to-day basis? A little bit, but because we've been involved in the SRA since 2010, um, we've proudly been having three-star rating across our restaurants from the beginning. Our customers expect it of us. I think that no one was shocked when we put our hands up and said, hi, we're a sustainable restaurant. Everyone's like, well, of course you are. Because we've always been talking about grass-fed beef and having pasture and not having caged poultry or anything like that. And we've we've always been looking to do the right thing. It's just been part of our makeup from the, from the beginning, whether that's based on a gut instinct or whether it's based on, based on facts. So I think that our customers just have have got, have gone with it and have just assumed that we are doing the right thing. And luckily they're assuming correctly. Uh, I think they'd be more shocked if we turned around and said, we're actually not doing any of that stuff. So the Regent Street in St. James's area is notable because there are so many wonderful, sustainable restaurants that do a great job. We've mentioned Hawksmoor, but the Cafe Murano, Angela Hartnett's place, has a pasta dish made from offcuts of pasta that would otherwise be wasted. And then you have great places like Brasserie Zadel, Sabor and the Head and Street Kitchen. But I wanted to ask you each for your top tips. If I, as an ethical restaurant goer, want to go somewhere that is sustainable and doing all this wonderful stuff, what do you look out for and how do you know that's where you're eating? Can I start with you, Henry? You go to Sustainable Restaurant Association (laughs) website and look it up. It is very, I mean, I think there is a lot of guff in this area. You know, there are words like, which I just think should be banned, like as possible, you know, I don't know what it means, sustainable as possible, sustainable fish where possible. You know, there's a lot of greenwashing going on and the only way you can tell is either if you know the owner or know of them and just like know that they have deep integrity or if they're being kept honest by I mean it was not just the Sustainable Restaurant Association other people do it as well but that is that is I think the only way really to know what it is and also it depends on what you care about so for example some people are more concerned in carbon some people are more concerned in biodiversity some people are more concerned with the role that the businesses play within their society and so you need to go to somewhere who'll tell you that because it's very difficult to tell from the way people talk. Could I ask you to tell me a little bit about the Sustainable Restaurant Association? What do you do? So it started actually out of Lyon, in that when we started Lyon, it was quite a selfish endeavour in that we wanted a place where we could eat fast food without feeling depressed and miserable, sleepy and fat. But the way that we talked, it became clear to us that people were, were assuming we were doing all sorts of things that we weren't. So they were assuming we were organic and that we were completely sustainable and etc, etc, etc. And so we felt two things. First of all, as we kind of looked into that and our supply chain, we began to feel that things weren't right in the system and that it was the right thing to try and change them. And that also, rather than constantly telling people, your customers, that you're not doing things, it would make sense to get on the journey, as they say. But we we started doing that and it was unbelievably complicated. I mean, running a restaurant is a living hell. There are so many moving parts. <laughs> Um, thousands of customers every day, so many things to go wrong. Like, what should you focus on on sustainability? Should it be uh, energy use? Should it be your fish sourcing? Should it be the way you treat your team? Should it be how you engage with your community? Like, trying to get your head around that at the same time as starting up a business was very, very hard. And at that time, an old friend of mine, Mark 
Sainsbury, who founded Morrow and then the Zeta Hotel, came to me and he said that he was having similar problems in his businesses and wanted to start a thing called the Sustainable Restaurant Association. And would I help him with people who were chains because he knew the, the individual world. And the idea of the Sustainable Restaurant Association is to give you, as a restaurant, a map of what you can do. So rather than you having to worry about it, they look at your business, they say, here are where you can improve, and you do two things this year, two things next year, every year you improve. We went from being, a, in Leon from being a one-star to a three-star, and it just helps you through that, that journey as you are struggling with everything else. But if every restaurant in the UK was fully sustainable, uh, we would still have issues with biodiversity, climate change, water pollution. But restaurants have a particular place in people's consciousness and they are able to talk to their customers and actually to play a political role as well as a, a kind of real implementational role in the system. So that, in a nutshell, is the Sustainable Restaurant Association. Melissa, what about you? What if you find yourself in a restaurant not having had the foresight to look at the website first? Are there tips on how to examine a menu? I always think... Let's go and support someone who's doing the right thing. So, you know, I've got this list in my head that I could sort of gleaned off Sustainable Restaurant Association or somebody that I want to try. And there's an awful lot of amazing pop-ups as well. And we mustn't forget the pop-ups, people that can't yet, or don't have the roots or the money to put down for a restaurant. The main thing is to ask questions. You talked about staff training, Emily, didn't you? Is if the restaurant has integrity, the staff will have been trained and and they'll want their staff to talk about all these good things. So I always like to chat and be like, what do you like on the menu? Is there something interesting that we, we have to try? And in, in general, you start to get pointers about what's going on. Also, on a menu where they care about their suppliers, they almost always write, the meat is from here, the vegetables are from here. These ingredients tend to cost more. So the restaurant quite rightly wants to shout about it so you know what you're paying for and you can see the effort they've gone to. So I think anyone that is doing it right tends to say it. They want to show off their proud, as an example, Scully's and, and St. James, you know, he's, he'll always have something very interesting and actually when you walk into Scully's it's absolutely beautiful you walk straight in and there's a floor to ceiling wall of preserves and ferments and things and the staff will so excitedly talk you through all the bottles and it feels like you're sort of in a sort of Harry Potter lab of things like like guess this guess what that is so you'll get it from the staff you'll get it from the menu and same with just buying going into supermarkets ask questions the more you ask the more people will go right well we're not perfect we'll learn more about that or customers are asking for this or and Emmy as someone on the flip side of this coin what do you do at Hawksmoor on a practical level to introduce sustainability and to show your commitment to the food waste pledge so we we implement uh, the culture of sustainability from word go. So the company induction you do, uh, as soon as you join I come and talk to you about sustainability and what it means to us and it's involved in every uh, decision we make and every department uh, has something to do with sustainability and obviously especially in the kitchen. So getting behind the food waste pledge was really important for us because it gave us a, a tangible opportunity to actually see what the problem was and what we could do. So by actually weighing our food waste and categorising it between the plate waste, the spoilage, the prep waste and, and seeing what was going in the bin. So we can, uh, on our uh, next menu change, we can look at those dishes and see what we can do to reduce that food waste at its source. 
is something that we're we're really excited to start implementing now we're getting all our data back from the the project um which is it's so it's really really great and i think that it's such a small thing to do just to look in your bin and weigh it on some scales but you can make such a enormous difference uh to the amount of food that you throw away again from an environmental and from a financial perspective do you have anything you want to add to that about what you'd look for in a restaurant that isn't hawksmoor (laughs) to be sustainable uh, I, th- I think really just echoing really what Melissa's um, saying about I always, if I see, I saw rhubarb on a menu last night and it just made me do a little shudder. But for me, it's very much about looking at the seasonality, knowing about that restaurant. I always look up a restaurant before I go and kind of see what their principles are behind them. And I mean, luckily enough, we have, you know, the Sunday Times Best Companies. Um, you can kind of, if you want to look at how staff are being treated and uh, I'm lucky enough to work a lot with the SRA and go to a lot of meetings with the guys there so there's a lot of restaurants that I'm uh, opened up to by going to those those places so I would really say looking on something like the SRA's website and you know following certain influences on Instagram or social medias where you can kind of you can learn about places like Scully you can learn about places like Cafe Murano doing these amazing dishes because they're the people that are shouting about it and talking to uh, customers that's how we we receive our information now is is really through social media and uh, and reading blogs and columns, I think knowing knowing the people that are speaking with authority about the subject and making your own decision, what's important to you. Well, that's interesting you mentioned sort of food bloggers and influencers because is there also a danger that you follow people who are taking these really beautiful, artfully presented pictures of food and yet the vast majority of them don't say you need to be careful about sustainability and food waste? Is that something that you're aware of Melissa because you have a following on Instagram even though you're much more than that (laughs) but do you strive to be ethical in the information that you give yeah yeah definitely and I also am very um time life short and time is scarce and I don't want to be on my phone all the time I'm I really edit who I follow because I'm there to learn too so I love following Tom Hunt Doug McMaster from Silo who's written the most amazing book um first zero waste restaurant in in the UK I follow suppliers um Fern Vero uh Jekka's Herbs I love following farmers I love seeing you know I, I love on Instagram uh, on rather Instagram. than real life <laughs> just <laughs> trail them around you know, I live in East London I like to see beautiful sunsets over fields but you know uh, it's also really interesting I know sorry this sounds a little bit abstract but if I'm having a rubbish day, you know, I live in East London. I would love to live in the countryside. I just feel like, you know, London life is is pulling on me. I start my day and half of my feed is farmers. And, you know, they're like, oh, I might be like, oh, I hate the rain today. I've got to be on the tube. It's going to be soggy and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, the rain is amazing. Look at the brassicas flourishing from the rain. And I feel in touch with the world from that. And I feel connected. And I base my food and food choices based on I can learn from them and see what's happening. Yeah, Tom Hunt, Doug McMaster, Anna Greenland is an amazing um, organic gardener. She set up Raymond Blanc's garden and Soho Farmhouse's garden. And she's been giving me tips. And also, you know, like I'm saying, I'm growing my own. I don't have have all the space and time to make mistakes. There's also a great guy called Hugh who's got a book called Veg in One Bed, which teaches you how to grow a lot of veg in a small bed. So I love to learn from them. Um, And I follow lots of people. I work a lot with the Felix Project. We're cooking together at the moment for uh, um, school holiday programs that kids can have home-cooked hot meal during the school holidays that they would normally have at school. And we're using wasted products that would otherwise have gone in the bin. And actually working with them, I'm totally shocked every time I do it, by the sheer volume of food that arrives, the quality of it 
is great. It's it's better than you would see in some supermarkets. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just been deemed not right to sell on. So it's been rescued by brilliant people like the Felix Project. And there are so many local uh, versions of the Felix Project who've been doing this for a long time. And there's Food Cycle as well. So I, f- I fill my feed with with people like that and people like your good staff elizabeth for um interesting book recommendations but also yeah where to read more you know people writing where can you learn more about things who to follow that's my favorite way to use social media it's got to be practical there's got to be takeaway tips i don't just want to like people's beautiful lives i really want to make my life more meaningful so i follow those people I think that's such a beautiful thing that actually you're using social media to become connected again to the land, which is what Henry was talking about, that notion that we've slightly lost and that actually technology can help us in that way rather than distancing us. It can connect us. And I wanted to ask you, Henry, a vast question. (laughs) Get ready. (laughs) Which Which is how technology will impact this particular area over the next five years. Uh, hugely. Technology is going to transform farming and the food system completely. For example, just last week, I was talking to an academic at the University of Nottingham, and he was talking about technologies for labelling and saying he thought within five years, non-invasive ways of determining the micronutrient quality of each tomato, say, and labelling them with a QR code so that you will be able to go into supermarkets with your phone, swipe it over the individual tomatoes, cauliflowers, and see which have the highest quantities of micronutrients. He thinks that's going to happen quite soon. So what happens then? Farmers stop producing for yield, or at least, you know, if even if only 5% of customers do that, farmers will start producing for quality. That is just one example of... Uh, the way in which technology, uh, not only AI, but robotics is going to completely transform the world of farming. And I think in quite a frightening way. But if it's combined, if we combine it with regenerative agriculture, so an understanding of what we did in the previous green revolution, which was effectively mining, you know, farming through mining, mining nitrates, mining other fertilizers and putting them on the land. If we can combine the idea of circular systems with that technology, I'm quite optimistic about the future and about the ability of, uh, you know, that plus things that go in your fridge to monitor how how your food is. Plus, you know, if you look at Ocado, Ocado just bought Jones Food. Jones Food is a factory in Scunthorpe. I went to it the other day. You go in to this factory building near British Steel. Uh, You go in through an airlock because it is under positive pressure. So the air as you go in comes down. You stand in this airlock like a spaceman and get blasted with uh, air from above to remove any contaminants. And inside they're growing parsley and, and lettuces under LED lights which are being harvested by robots, which are then packed without needing any nitrogen or any uh, cleaning, which have a much longer shelf life and keep their nutrients longer. And Ocado just bought that because they think they can put those things on top of their warehouses so that you will be getting food that is grown effectively to order when you order your gem lettuce and stuff. So oh it's, the world is going to change <laughs> Beyond any kind of concept of, uh, uh, you know, we are very, very, in our imaginations, always very centred on the present. But technology is going to completely blow this world apart. And I think if we control it, if we get the right control in place in a very positive way. Are they going to stop packaging those LED grown lettuces in plastic? Uh, Don't know. 
uh, yeah, and people are working on it. So they so Nestle have already created a non-plastic material that can go through the same machines at the same speed as plastic. So yes, I'm I'm optimistic that technology is there to solve these problems. I think that we have a this is quite a technical point, but I think that we have a a problem in this country in the way in which we fund and look at. Uh, food system innovation and research because we came from a time during the war when we started the war producing 20% of our own food we increased the amount we grew by two thirds we grubbed up hedges dig for victory exactly we then were terrified about running out of food and that was what led to the green revolution and then in the 80s we had butter mountains we the 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 subsidy system had created a massive glut of food and so we thought we've solved food we've solved the problems in the food system Uh, And that was before we realised that uh, the problems of health and the environment were about to hit us uh, 10 years later. And so we sucked all of the research into food and innovation out of the system because we thought we'd solved it. I think that is something that needs to change. But that's quite a technical point. (laughs) And what about about price? Because I know that that's something that we often come up against like the school dinner initiative and all that sort of stuff there's there's a sense that food that is good for you is more expensive and not everyone can afford it but do you think that will change with technological advances there's a certainly unhelpful debate about whether food is in inverted commas too expensive or too cheap you know people say food's too cheap we throw it away people say it's too expensive people on lower incomes can't afford healthy food food costs what it costs. The problem is that a lot of the externalities haven't been priced into it. So the cost of the the destruction of biodiversity, the cost of carbon is not built into your food. So if you put the externalities into food, the price of food would go up a bit, uh, undoubtedly. How much? We're hoping to find out over the next few months. You then have a question of whether people can afford healthy food. And for me... Healthy food costs what it costs. And yes, I do think the price will come down because we do get, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, I was in a celery field in Norfolk a few weeks ago. And for celery, they have these massive diggers, which are about 15 metres wide. And underneath an arm, you have 15 people who go along on rows, chopping the celery, putting it onto the, th- onto the thing. It then whizzes up behind them onto a machine and gets put into a plastic bag in the field, ready to pack. Next door to this was their new one, where they had robots doing the job with those 15 people. That is going to reduce the price of food and also increase productivity, reduce the number of poorly paid jobs, hopefully increase the number of highly paid jobs in the economy. So price of food will come down. Whether it comes down enough so that the way in which we distribute income in our society means that those on lower incomes can afford healthy food, that to me is a separate question. That is about the welfare state, how we structure our economies, minimum wage, etc. That's a whole other podcast, so (laughs) thank you for that. And Emmy technology in restaurants, how do you think that will transform in the next five years, this particular issue? I think that technology... It can only get better and should only get better and be used in the restaurants more. At at the end of the day, chefs are busy. Everyone in a restaurant is busy. When you've got 250 covers coming in on a Friday lunch in July, you you need to have as much time as possible to be able to get on with your job at hand, which is prepare the restaurant and serve loads of customers. We already have quite a bit of technology uh, available in restaurants. I think any technology that can make 
preparing food much more efficiently or helping to divert it afterwards, whether that's to a charity or using any sort of app or, you know, a push button kind of alert is going to help everyone so much, as well as technology to help with your procurement, your forecasting to make sure that you're you're buying the correct amount of food this week compared to how many did you how much did you buy and sell last year, same time last year, what are the weather conditions? And you can build all these yourselves. But if there was some technology created for restaurants and hospitality usage where you could kind of map everything in a really simple way. So chefs can look at it and go, what am I making? Um we're not all lucky enough to have uh, three ducks from the neighbouring farm be given to you and that's all you cook that week. And at Hawksmoor especially, our menu doesn't, the core of our menu is the same every year. So how many potted beef did we sell on Tuesday, the 12th of July last year? Okay, well, how many are we going to sell this year? And anything that we can do to make that easier, because if we are buying less, we're buying the correct amount, it goes back to that farmer. We're not having to overproduce. We're not having to uh, put that demand back on the farmer to create all the waste for it to only go back in the bin. It's linking everything up, making the connection back to the land and creating more of a cyclical journey on that food. It doesn't just come into the restaurant and go on a plate. It's come from somewhere and helping people realise that I think is really important. Um, And if technology can offer us a little stepping stone in the right direction, I think that's great. And what do you think of the rise of apps such as Olio and and Too Good To Go? I think they're um, a fantastic idea. And actually, when I was um, shooting my last book, I was really inspired by this book called Simplicious Flow that this incredible author called Sarah Wilson has written. And it's the world's first zero waste book. But I was so inspired by how she wrote her book to be completely zero waste. She didn't waste a thing. She'd sort of reused her baking parchment throughout the whole shoot. I mean, I'm just frugal type, you know, don't like to waste anyway. But I would always either send people home with food, the photographer, the assistants and so on, or or I would freeze it because you've had everyone shooting your house all day. You want to just cook something. But I was chatting to the shoot team and they were saying often at the end of a shoot, as an example, a food shoot, a book food shoot, there's tons and tons of food. So they all use Olio and they tell people, come and collect all this food if you want it. Perfectly good, amazing food. Um, and it becomes this incredibly fun thing and it's a great way to meet people. And apps, I think, are amazing. But you probably also, if you joined your local Facebook group or community group, could do the same, knowing that it was probably your neighbour next door would come and collect something. So... I think they're brilliant. I think the doggy bag thing is great. I think that more, we do it all the time, but I think that more people need to, you need to remove that stigma. Like if you've gone to a restaurant and there's delicious food, but it's too much you, because you're not as hungry or you ordered too much or whatever, take it home. Like have an amazing midnight snack, have it for breakfast, like do something with it. it. Like, if in doubt. Why wouldn't you? Like, why wouldn't you take this amazing, like someone's cooked for you. You get to then take it home and then not have to cook another meal. Yeah. You can just reheat it. It's brilliant. Also, same with wine. If there's a little bit of wine left, I'm taking that bottle home. <laughs> <laughs> Crack an egg on it is such a good tip as well, yeah. because I, I'm half Swiss and we often have big bowls of just melted cheese fondue. And then at the very end, when it gets all like gritty and salty, you just put an egg in. It's absolutely lovely. lovely. On that note, I think we all need to go out for a very long lunch and eat everything and take doggy bags home with us. Um, thank you so, so much to Henry, to Emmy and to Melissa. What a fascinating conversation and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to Shaping the Future by Regent Street. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please do take a minute to rate, review and subscribe. 
It really does help other people to find the show. Follow more Regent Street happenings at Regent Street W1 on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Otherwise, head over to regentstreetonline.com for more detailed information. This has been Shaping the Future by Regent Street with me, your host, Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth Day.